And we are back. Welcome to the third episode of our podcast. I'm Jorge Tamames, and this time we have a special end of the summer edition episode coming from the other side of the Atlantic, where Aiden Reagan just interviewed Mark Blythe. Mark Blythe is the, bear with me because this is a mouthful, William R. Rhodes Professor of International Economics at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. He has researched for a long time now the relationship between economic ideas and the policies they produce in the real world. He has made a series of doomsday but ultimately accurate predictions such as Brexit and the election of Donald Trump and published several books. Some of them are Great Transformations, The Future of the Euro, co-edited with Matthias Matijs, and Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, which was selected among the Financial Times' best books of 2013. In the prologue of that book, Mark makes the claim that academics should ultimately act as the bullshit police, calling out bad ideas for what they are when they take place in public debate. As we'll see throughout the course of this conversation, however, bad economic ideas have a habit of persisting even when they've been disproven or proven to be wrong or disastrous. Throughout the course of this conversation, Aiden and Mark talk about the politics of central banks and public debt, climate change, populism, the left, the radical right, the interplay between economic ideas and class politics, Donald Trump, Jeremy Corbyn, Matteo Salvini, how nobody cares about inflation, the aftermath of the 2008 crisis, and the problems it has brought for the left, as well as the future of the European Union. So Mark, you're internationally known for somebody who's an expert in economic ideas and the power of economic ideas over policy making. How did you get into this? What's the background to your interest in economic ideas? So the usual answer I give to this one is I left Great Britain in 1991 because of a woman, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> and that's kind of the answer. So let's go back to, about, I think it was 1981. And there was a British program, which I think is still going on, called Panorama. And I would watch Panorama when I was 13 because I was a geek. And they had this amazing show where it was kind of like a game show between two economists. And this is the first time I'd ever come across economists or anything like this. So one of them was an old bloke who's in his 50s. He's got a tweed jacket and a daft haircut. And he was from, I think, the Manchester University or someplace like this. And uh, he was the Keynesian. And they talked about his model, which had 6,000 equations and tried to model the household sector and the financial sector, blah, blah, blah. And I had no idea what they were talking about. And then the other side was this bloke wearing a very nice suit who was about 30 years old who just looked like one of Thatcher's children. And he was from London Business School. And he had a monetarist model, which had about six equations. And I was like, what's going on here? And they, they ran data through it. And basically, you know, this one would say this and this. And what was amazing about the monetarist one was no matter what happened, uh, the answer was tax cuts and the result was nirvana. <laughs> and I was 13 and I thought to myself, that's bullshit. That's total bullshit. But I could see immediately how powerful this was. Mm. So right there and then was the moment when I started to pay attention to economics, not as a way of explaining the world, but as a thing in the world which in and of itself is politically powerful. So that's really the moment it came from. Um, in Great Transformations in the preface, I also talk about a moment with my dad where, you know, we're driving down the road. I wasn't raised by my father, so, you know, times in the car with him are few and far between, so they stick in the, mem in the memory. And uh, we're talking about the upcoming 83 election. 
And this guy from every possible conception, he was a butcher in the city slaughterhouse, right? I mean, this guy was as working class as you get. He should have been a labor man. But he never was. He was mm. the classic sort of angel in marble, as the British political science literature had it, the working class conservative. And I said, why wouldn't you, you know, vote for this? He says, well, you know, they're worried about unemployment and that's something to worry about. There's a lot of people around here who don't have jobs. But what they'll do is they'll borrow all this money and they'll spend it. And people will think that they're rich and then they'll spend all that money. But it won't really change anything. And all there will be is inflation. And you're back to square one. And then the government's got less money to do the stuff it needs to do. And, you know, we've been through this before. That's what the 70s was and you know you just can't do that anymore Mm. so right there is the long run neutrality of money thesis Mm. the supply side dominance thesis the monetary dominance thesis all coming out of the mouth of a butcher Mm. and i thought wow so you can see the attraction right of tax cuts more money in the pocket it's attractive to all classes right to a certain extent anybody who's working but why then do bad ideas persist because you've written a lot about this because particularly in the aftermath of the financial crises Mm -hmm. why do bad ideas persist bad economic ideas persist because the the, the definition i give in that book austerity the history of a dangerous idea is the subtitle is there for a reason they're a dangerous idea because they're immune to empirical refutation It doesn't matter how many times you show that recessions cause damage, that they lower long-run growth trajectories, that the hysteresis effect in labor markets, i.e. you lose skills and you never get your lifetime earnings, has massive effects across generations. It still pops up that, no, really, the problem is just like a family that spent too much and we all need to tighten our belts, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason behind that is simple class politics. Mm. Those who are the creditor classes don't want to lose and the debtors want to have their debts relieved. And that's the basic standoff, a creditor-debtor standoff that happens any time a financial crisis. Mm. So, you know, there's a class politics behind it. But what to me is interesting is how that gets played out in the realm of ideas and why certain ideas such as the state's just like a family, spoiler alert, it's not. Um, expansionary austerity, the idea that if we cut budgets now, then what will happen is we'll have a bad recession, true, but it'll be short because that'll show we're serious about long-run taxes. And because I'll have less taxes to pay in the future, I'll run out to Ikea now, buy a couch and cure the recession. Mm. That's basically what the argument is, uh, with lots of math. And these arguments become very powerful. And, you know, they caused an enormous amount of damage in Europe in uh, the period of the financial crisis. So, yeah, they, they don't die. You know, John Quiggin calls them zombie ideas. Mm. And I think it's another nice way of putting it. So, you know, the ideas, as you say, are connected to a kind of class politics. But I suppose if one thinks it's easy to look back now and observe the extent to which the state intervened to save the financial system and the trillions that were effectively committed to bailing out the private sector. But it is remarkable to think that very quickly that shifted towards the household, that suddenly the state was to blame. Is there something to be said that the left in particular doesn't have the language or a discourse to talk positively about the role of government and the state in the economy anymore? Oh, yeah, that's a huge issue. I mean, one way of thinking about the past 30 years of that entire period from when I watched Panorama as a kid right until now has been the systematic delegitimation of the state right across Mm. the OECD. 
And the way this plays out in macro is, you know, supply side dominance and monetary dominance. So, you know, fiscal policy, which used to run the show, you can't be trusted with it and it has leads and lags. That used to be monetary policy. Now it's fiscal policy. Mm. You don't really know if it's going to work, blah, blah, blah. Or ultimately it's a waste because of people's expectations and they discount the effects, etc. So you shouldn't do anything. And then also you're incompetent, so you can't do anything. I know all the state, it's for losers. There's makers and there's takers, and the mm. state's just filled with takers. And all of these different sort of little sort of micro discourses which have become concatenated and layered over the past 30 years. And then you, if you think about it, particularly in the cases of the United States and also to a certain extent the United Kingdom, you know, it used to be the case that if you worked in the central civil service in Whitehall, that was an extraordinarily respected thing to do and now you're just another lazy government bureaucrat mm. right you know you're not out there in the private sector you're in the protected sector you're trading off security against income rather than actually providing public goods doing incredibly important enforcement and regulation that actually makes markets work better for everyone so there's been an enormous turnaround in the way that we talk about the state which has been massively consequential that has been a project of the right but it was embraced by the left almost as an electoral strategy and you saw that most clearly with the gerhard schroeder tony blair period whereby the whole state became enabling, poverty disappeared, it became social exclusion, etc. And th those languages, again, although non-economic, have deep economic roots and economic consequences. Mm. But do you think that there is a deep crisis in our existing economic paradigms, particularly in relation to the dominant monetary paradigm, given that the central bank has intervened so much and committed so much public resources to bailing out the private sector, that suddenly we're in a world whereby well, what's going to happen next? So I'm having a conversation with a Swiss economic historian about this stuff, and we're going to do a conference. And we're doing going to do a conference called the, Bi the Bystander Hypothesis. And it's because there's all this work now on long-term interest rates. Mm. And those interest rates basically start, we, start we, have, we have a record from about 13, 15, and they're about 12% real. And they just go down and down and down and down. And if you look at it over the short term, the volatility is huge. You know, wars, crises, plagues, famine, right? But if you look at the long run linear trend, it's straight down. Now, there's a whole branch of economic, uh, economic history about the revolution in military affairs, the fiscal capacity of the state. Charles Tilley brought this into sociology, all this good stuff. And that's how we think about, you know, why bond markets exist, because they needed to fight wars, so they needed to give creditors better protection, blah, blah, blah. But there's a whole bunch of countries that didn't do that. And their rates went down as well. Mm, mm. Now, there's an, an analog to this for central banks. So central banks appear on the scene uh, as, as independent central banks in the 1980s, primarily spreading in the 1990s. Juliet Johnson's book is, of course, the Bible on this mm. stuff. And uh, the essential claim is inflation is always and everywhere a present danger, and we need to be the police. We're out there to get it. And then it looks like uh, interest rates are, are down and volatility is down in general and inflation is down. So Bernanke writes, the great moderation and then the whole world blows up mm. but despite the whole world blown up and despite 20 percent equivalent of the, the global money supply being chucked into the global money supply so basically 17 to 20 trillion dollars extra being shoved in in direct intervention inflation continues to go down and as a consequence interest rates continue their long decline mm. so my big question is this are the central banks bystanders mm. So it's way beyond, you know, are we in a world which their capacities aren't there now? Maybe they never really did that much. 
they were kind of, if you will, performing the role, but the world was disinflating because inflations are actually incredibly unusual unless you have state collapse and hyperinflation and warfare. So given most people most of the time in the developed world are not in that state, you had this unusual inflation in the 1970s for reasons we can get into. And then once that was bust in the 1980s through monetary action, through Volcker and others jacking up interest rates, down and down and down and down and down they went. And that's where we are now. So you build these central banks with these capacities and independence and credibility. And, it, and, and I can't help but wonder if they're just bystanders. Or just sitting at the top of the pyramid in the sense of, so we talk about central banks being independent from government. And you talk about kind of the consumer price inflation, as you say, is going down. But asset price inflation is not. And the interventions of central banks in the aftermath of the crisis have driven up the price of assets. So in that sense, they have a role to play. But it begs the question, to what extent are central banks independent from the financial market oh, and no, the banks ab- that they regulate? Absolutely. So a really important point that we need to clarify is an inflation is an increase in the general level of all prices. When you use the word inflation, that's what it means. There is no such thing as asset price inflation. Mm. Asset prices go up because there's an enormous inequality skew and people are buying assets because they expect a higher income stream of returns from the purchase of those assets in the future as opposed to the present. That's not an inflation. Mm. Now, I'm not being a pedant about this, right? I think it's really important to make that distinction because it's absolutely the case that in order to stabilize inflation or inflationary expectations, if you want to go down that route, what the central banks have been doing is quantitative easing and asset purchases and all that sort of stuff. And that's led to all sorts of distortions and perhaps some inequality, et cetera, et cetera. But they're not causing an inflation, mm. right? And we, we use that language too carelessly. Mm. The problem that we have structurally is disinflation, if not deflation, particularly in Europe. It may be the case that assets, classes, stocks, shares, and housing in particular are going through the roof, but that's because the world's phenomenally unequal. And in a world in which you get negative real rates by sticking your money in the bank, people want positive rates. What do they do? They buy houses, Mm. right? So it's a very different thing. And the central banks are part of that, but I see them as rather than producing that problem, they might have amplified in one or two ways But again, this is the long-run structural story. If interest rates are going through the floor and you get nothing sticking in the Sparkasse and you're German savers and you think you've got a God-given right to 4% real just for showing up, you better find something else to make your returns. Mm. And that's what's been going on. Mm. So you've written a bit about, you know, the shift in macroeconomic regimes whereby the Keynesian commitment to full employment, the monetarist commitment to price stability, and you've just clearly outlined that, you know, this commitment is, is problematic now. So what? Where next? Where, where? What's the next phase? What's the next paradigm shift here? So to me, the, the two things. The, the only thing that matters, and I'm being perfectly serious when I say this, is climate change. Mm. Right. Everything else, given what we're seeing in terms of increasing feedback effects and sort of things that were meant to happen 90 years from now, like Anchorage, Alaska being 94 degrees and all that sort of fun stuff, and every summer is the hottest summer that we have, etc. Mm. You know, you're getting to the point that you can talk about within, you know, not just within our lifetimes, within a decade, the destabilization of the glaciers of Europe, mm. which then basically screws up all French and German agriculture. I mean, these are pretty serious stuff. So the next frontier, and it's interesting, let's go back to central banks. We've got politicians that are either in denial because they're paid off or don't want to think about it because it's too hard given a short-term electoral calculus. 
who are being embarrassed into action by basically things such as Greta Thunberg mm. or alternatively the Amazon fires or public opinion. They don't really know what to do or how to get out of this problem, so they choose to just ignore it. And it's kind of interesting that the central banks have been quite vocal about this. Mm. Now, we can think of them as regulating financial markets, enabling financial markets, or being captured by financial markets. I think of this as this is the regulation and enabling mode. What they're basically signaling is the problem of stranded assets, carbon assets in particular. Here's what I mean by stranded assets, right? So I have um, a house in South Florida, for example. And South Florida is lovely. It's got beaches, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but, you know, you know that the beaches are going to go and you know there's going to be floods. And once the flood happens three times, you're out. And then there's no buyer for those houses. Doesn't matter if your house has never been flooded, nobody's buying, right? Mm. So think about carbon assets. Think about we shoot through one and a half percent, governments finally pull on the brakes, say that's it, you know, the oil majors. Turns out they were the ones spreading all this crap about uh, climate change and disinformation. No different from the tobacco companies. They're the ones that need to pay for green tech, blah, blah, blah. What happens if you're a bourse that's heavy carbon? What happens if your portfolio for your retirement has got Exxon in it? Because everybody does, mm. right? So I think the financial markets recognize this. And just as, in a sense, the state acted, to use that great Marxist term, as the ideal collective capitalist during a financial crisis to save everyone's assets, the central banks are now doing that in a forward-looking way, saying, hey, we need to take this climate stuff seriously, because if not, it's going to destroy the values of everything. Mm. So to me, it's kind of fascinating that the only bit of the political system, because they are political actors, that really are paying attention is actually the central banks. Mm. So central banks could intervene to change... What though, exactly? Well, that's the thing. It's not clear exactly what they can do. I mean, they can raise the alarm and so on and so forth. What you really need is concerted action by institutional investors. And mm. there's been some as- some of that has been going on. Uh, there was uh, a large conference in London of institutional investors basically saying that they're not going to invest in certain carbon risk assets, etc. last year to the tune of several hundred billion dollars. So there is some movement on that. Um, the central banks, you know, what do they do? They talk, they signal. Mm. That's what they do. Mm. Mm. Actually, I'll tell you a funny list. You ever hear about the paper from New Zealand about inflation expectations? No. So I'll, I'll try and dig this out and send it to you. So they've been doing inflation targeting in New Zealand longer than anyone else, right? So the whole point of this is the claim that there's sort of two ways of thinking about inflation. One is a simple quantitative monetary effect, right, which relies on money not being generated by banks per se as credit, but as central bank money, qua base reserves and multiplication in a banking system, whatever, right? And then all that sort of stuff. So basically, inflation is caused by too much money. Now, there's another one that says, no, it's expectations. People expect prices to go up and that becomes embedded and all that sort of stuff, right? So taking the expectation stuff seriously, which is what most of modern macro takes seriously, and and I take expectations seriously, it relies upon ordinary members of the public giving a shit Mm. and actually paying attention to this and understanding what the signal is and seeking out the signal. Mm. And we assume that that happens, but do we have any evidence? Well, this paper in New Zealand is brilliant. So they basically did massive Google searches to find out if anyone in New Zealand actually ever went to the central bank website and tried to look at inflation numbers. whatever. And I think the number was you were 10,000 times more likely to look at any video sent to you from YouTube than you were to look at a central bank signal. <laughs> So, you know, again, what exactly are they doing and who's listening? Yeah, 
Yeah. So just to bring it back in the political science dimension for a moment, you have written that the policy response to the international financial crises gave rise to the conditions that led to Donald Trump Brexit. Global Trumpism, as I called it, yes. You might elaborate on that and for our listeners. Well, I think everybody's kind of got to that position Mm. now. I was just sort of a little bit ahead of the curve on this one. That You know, if you run a world that's massively skewed in terms of an inequality skew for 30 years, you fill in the gap with credit, you have a massive financial crisis, you suddenly then discover that what banks talk about when they talk about assets is actually everybody else's liabilities. Mm. So the banks get bailed, which basically means that your liabilities are kept whole, but your job just went bang. Your income hasn't grown in some cases, depending on where you are in the income distribution for 30 years. Although there's no inflation, prices of the big stuff that really matters, healthcare, particularly in the United States, education, goods, etc., are going through the roof. And you're being told by the chattering classes on the coasts who have got all the real estate and all the wealth that everything's fine. And we're, in the case of America, celebrating Obama's legacy. And it turned out lots of people didn't think that legacy was all it was cracked up to be. Mm. Or alternatively in the United Kingdom, as we know now that the brunt of austerity um, fell on local and regional governments in the United Kingdom. Uh, Preston in the north of England suffered a 30% cut in real terms, and that wasn't that unusual in terms of the the swinging cuts. Meanwhile, metropolitan London was pretty much unscathed. Mm. So the provinces were burned to save the assets of the rich. Mm. And then along come Brexit whereby the entire British ruling class link arms and tell the people who have just been massively hurt by those same people that everything's great, we should stay in the EU. I mean, do we need to have more complex explanations than this? Mm. It's been Mm. 30 years in the making. So it's basically austerity. It's the austerity response. And there's a lot of research published on that now in the UK um, that effectively... Yeah, the Fetzer paper and a whole bunch of stuff, absolutely. But I tend to think of that as, you know, not this... Eric Lonergan and I have done some stuff on this. It wasn't caused by the financial crisis, but it was all just waiting for the financial crisis to cause it, Mm. right? I'm not being clever when I say that. What I mean is it was all there. All the ingredients of the cake were there. And the settlement that kept it going, the continual expansion of credit to people who could barely make the payments, that was just had to go. Mm. And eventually when it did, I mean, in a sense, there should have been a bigger reset of the system. But the central bank came in and bailed the system. Mm. So in a sense, we gave a massive liquidity injection to a system that had just had a liquidity heart attack. Mm. And we put it back together again. But now you're 10 years out and the politics has changed. And the politics have changed massively. I mean, if you think about it, you go to the G7 now, right? You know, you're looking at, is, was Salvini actually there? I don't think Did they actually know? He doesn't no, get in the seven. He'd no. be in the G10, no. right? So imagine if you're a G10, right? Who would you have? Well, mm. you probably have, you know, Trump. You got Johnson. You might have Salvini, right? I mean, the, the political forces have been radically rearranged. Mm. Given that the state committed so much public resources to bailing out the private sector, those same public resources could be committed to healthcare, education, public infrastructure, childcare, climate action. And we know from public opinion that, broadly speaking, people are favorable towards those social democratic policies. So, the conditions should have been ripe for the left to have a response to this, but they didn't, and it's the left that are suffering. What explains that? Well, one of the things you can think about is in many cases, the putative left, whether they were left mm. or not, was actually in charge when it all went down. Mm. So Britain is a classic example of this. And what did they do? They bailed the banks. 
because they were said you know too big to fail etc be catastrophe whether it is or not is an open question but it was the left that in many cases you know did this and that invited the right-wing critique uh, of the Tea Party and others, which was, this isn't capitalism. Mm. And in that case, they're completely right. I mean, you were socializing the risk and you were meeting out punishment instead of reward. And, you know, you can understand why then there's a loss of left credibility with this. If you will, the sort of the Blairite Schroeder project, if you will, the Obama project, the Clinton project, was essentially to disassociate yourself from working class organizations and try and find the nice people in the financial sector. And it turned out when you do that and everything goes bad, you then bail out your nice friends in the financial sector and you suffer, quite rightly, a massive loss of credibility. That credibility takes time to be rebuilt. I mean, we see this with what happened with the British Labour Party with Corbyn. There was a marvellous bit when I was in Britain when they were doing the leadership election. And uh, we'll go back and remember how this happened. Corbyn was put on as a sop to the left by the people who ran the party. And they had four super mainstream, totally Blairite candidates. I think mm. two women and two two men. And there was um, one of the London radio stations had a whole bunch of them on, including Corbyn. And they asked them about what they would do with Miliband. He's lost the election. And now you're going to have a leader. You know, do you have him back in government? And they all gave these convoluted answers and blah, 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 and wouldn't answer the question. And, and Corbyn pipes up and says, well, he did a great job when he was environment spokesman. I mean, I'd have him back in a heartbeat. Hmm. And the person reading it, running the radio show went, that's why he's going to win. Hmm. Because people are just fed up with the type of answers you people give. And there's a huge amount of information in mm. that little exchange. And, you know, whatever you think of the Corbyn project, I mean, he quadrupled Labour Party membership. And although the wheels seem to have come off the wagon a bit recently, being wrong-footed by Boris mainly, but any other social democratic leader that would quadruple the membership would be hailed as a hero, as mm. opposed to some kind of, you know, terrorist who confuses Hamas and Hamas, which is where we are just now. So I think that the left, by associating itself very much with the new liberal project, has suffered an enormous credibility deficit mm. and also has an impoverishment of ideas because, you know, when you hang around with those folks and, you know, you're backing those folks up, you accept their version of the world. And when it turns out it goes pants and you don't have any alternative, then, you know, your credibility deficit gets worse. So I don't think it's that people have this weird thing going on where they have these preferences, but they're unable to articulate them. Mm. It really is a case that the political parties and other organizations that supposedly represent those preferences actually don't. Mm. And a lot of what the populist reaction is, is essentially coming to terms with that. Mm. And it is worth remembering that even though it's on the back foot at the moment, there is a left populism as well as a right populism. It's just that we spend all our time on the right one because it's a bit more ugly, intelligenic, and, and, and newsworthy. Mm. But, you know, Spain's not to be dismissed. Portugal's not to be dismissed. Half of Italy's not to be dismissed. Corbyn maybe should be dismissed at this point. We don't know. We'll see. Mm. But it's more than just the right. And it's mm. important to remember that. Yeah. So we're here for a workshop on kind of comparative political economy, international political economy after the financial crises, looking at well, the next stage, if you like, in terms of research program. In terms of the social science of all of this, where do you think we should be going? So my motivation for helping to put this thing together is summed up in the, in the paper that I did with uh, Mark Schwartz, which basically asked the following question. 
it's quite plausible that these days, if you look around the world, you can see that countries under conditions of complex globalization have specialized. Mm. And they've had to. You have to find a way in the world. And countries that were traditionally exporters have become super exporters. And countries that were traditionally consumption-based have turbocharged that through debt and housing and all this sort of stuff. So we talk about different types of growth models. So here's the question. How does that come about? Is it simply a diffusion process? Is it more likely that it's diffusion plus some kind of hierarchical process? There's big countries pushing around small countries, right? Is there a, is there a project to this? Is there a politics to this? Um, interesting thing that, that Herman put in the paper, Mark put in the paper, a uh, similar um, thing is when you think about exporters, it's obvious the point of, well, there has to be somebody doing the importing. What's less obvious is what happens to the surplus. You need something to bank that with. So if you didn't have the dollar, you couldn't have any of this. Mm. So for me, the question is less, you know, what bolted down paradigm do I believe in as the next thing? But how do we take a much more sort of multi-scalar view of this that allows us to think about how growth regimes or growth models are not just embedded in particular international arrangements, but how the entire thing acts as an ecosystem? Mm. So just to shout out for one of the papers, um, the one that we had uh, on basically growth models in the environment mm. right? uh, by Jonas Nam. This is a great little paper, and I encourage people to look at the full version when it's finally written up. But the short version of it basically says something really interesting. If you've specialized as an exporter, you can do green tech because mm. you have the capability to build this stuff. But if you're a consumption-oriented place, even if you've got great politics, you kind of can't do it. Like you physically can't mm. do it. And also the, the coalitions to politically put that together aren't there because your, your growth model structure in a different way. And that's the type of thing that I think is really fascinating. Mm. There you have a global problem refracting through these different growth models, but actually telling us something about the world that we really didn't know. Mm. And ultimately that is always the project of the social sciences. Tell mm. me something I don't know. And one thing that's fascinating to me is that on the one hand, we talk about nation states, national growth models, et cetera, but then you look more closely at the economic geography of all of this and actually we're talking about cities metropolitan areas and this is the kind of link into the global supply chains totally and you know that obviously feeds into the politics that we're observing at the moment within countries so whilst on the one hand cities regions are tapping into the broader international economy they still operate within nationally bounded democratic totally. spaces i mean ireland's a fascinating mm. case of this but by virtue of its scale mm. so i mean what's the population four and a half million well if you include the north of ireland five but say the republic of ireland four and a half right, million. four and a half million right so how many is dublin 1.5 so greater dublin including the wealthy bits too yeah right so half the country is yeah. almost a metropole and that metropole, as your work has demonstrated, isn't just based on corporation tax anymore, mm. right? This is real investment by real companies with like, you know, real people mm. with real skills doing real stuff, um, platform economy, all this sort of stuff, right? Mm. So that's an entire, like, if you will, new growth model that has emerged because of a bunch of historical and technological accidents and changes that happened elsewhere. Mm. Right? In 2016, I did a piece in the um, European Journal of Economics uh, where I tried to coin a term which doesn't seem to have caught on, possibly because it has bad connotations. But I refer to basically the area from Finland down through Sweden into Germany to Slovenia and then out to Romania as the greater, Euro the greater German export complex, mm. which it is. Well, you can think about that as a thing 
and then think about basically the Chinese manufacturing areas, the coastal manufacturing areas. And then you can think basically about the American heartland through Texas, the bits that are still manufacturing. And when you consider that manufacturing is still 11% of the American economy, let's call it 10, right? That means it's a two trillion sector. Mm. That means that sector is half of the size of is the size of half of the German GDP. Mm. So not to be sniffed at. You could basically take those as your analytic units and tell a really interesting story about mm. the global economy. Mm. So it's how do we how do we choose our units? Yeah. What's the costs and benefits of going one way rather than the other? I think that's where that's where we're going to be going for the next few years. Yeah. Final question, Mark. So this podcast series is part of a series we're putting together on the new political economy of Europe at the Jean Monnet Centre at University College Dublin. Looking more concretely just at the European political economy, you've published a lot on this, you've, you've on, on austerity, the policy response and so forth. Where do you see things panning out in the next decade? So I think that the problematic part of the world for the next 10 years is Europe. Mm. And I, I don't say this with any joy in my heart. I think it's a sort of a tragedy. And a very simple way to think about it is it's the old problem of irresistible forces and immovable objects. Mm. And you've basically got an institutional order that says that the supply side does everything. Structural reform is the only thing you can do. We went through a massive recession and now we all need to tighten. Everybody needs to become an exporter. It just doesn't add up. Now, imagine an incredibly benign world environment of high growth. You might get away with that. Well, at least at the levels that we see now. But if you read China 20, uh, China's um, 2025, mm. they're coming after the Mittelstand. So that export surplus is going to be reduced. And if that's the only bit that's causing growth, you've got a problem. And then you got on the other side of here the possibility of Trump winning again. Mm. And if he does, it's quite clear that the tariff war that he's having with China is going to be extended to Europe. Now, throw in a few other things. There's no such thing as a European digital platform. Sorry, everyone, Skype is owned by Microsoft, right? Mm. So the world has been pulled between these two increasingly hostile blocks and Europe's caught in the middle with bad governance, weak governance, and in my opinion, a massively wrong macro settlement mm. that's trying to run a surplus against the rest of the world, banking somebody else's financial assets while doing so. Mm. I don't see that, that one going well. Mm. So even if the United States and China come to a modus vivendi, it's not clear that modus vivendi is going to help Europe. Now, I know it's an overly simple way of putting it, but in that case, more or less European integration? Well, this is it. I mean, the, the only pro the, the answer is simple, and it's gouvernement économique, right? Whatever Macron was hawking is what should be done. And then the, the problem is nine, 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 vielleicht nine, right? So we're not going to do any of that, and we'll do the lowest common denominator thing. And if you can't even really complete your banking union, so that you don't have to do what you did last time when the banks went bust. If you can't agree on a substantial common insurance policy for unemployment so that people feel that they really have skin in the game, right? Mm -hmm. As a sort of, I guess, European money insures me and insures my future as opposed to the national, then you're just playing at the margins and they're very much playing at the margins. I had a conversation with someone from the ESM on the sidelines of a conference recently and they got very agitated that I was quite down about Europe because all they could say was, but the spreads are down, but the spreads are down, but the spreads are down. It's like, well, if that's the only thing you look at, then it's really hard to understand why Salvini is so popular. Mm. There's more going on than just the spreads. Yeah. 
Okay, Mark, thank you very much for this uh, podcast. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. I'm surprised you didn't ask me why I was an Everton fan. <laughs> why are you an Everton fan? <laughs> Later. Later. <laughs>